You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we start a new series, one that many of you have been asking for for a long time, and that is on British explorer Captain James Cook. Cook is one of the most famous explorers in history, and to be honest, I don't know if any person traveled as far or mapped as much as our English mariner. He would lead three voyages of exploration in the 1770s, mostly in the Pacific, traveling between the Arctic and the Antarctic, his expeditions being some of the most important of the era. Due to how much he accomplished, and a lot of documentation, this promises to be a beast of a series, so get prepared for a long run over the next few months. A few notes to start. 1. If you have not listened to the Abel Tasman series, I recommend doing so as it really sets us up for our series on Cook. 2. There is a ton of documentation and research about Cook. This includes the man's journals, which are very detailed, as well as a boatload of biographies. With so much source material, please know that we will have some conflicting bits of information. I've done my best to pick out what I think is the best data, but know that you may come across your own info that contradicts what I say. Not a big deal, but I just wanted to give you a heads up in case it happens. And three, while you don't really need it for today, I have put some maps on our site, explorerspodcast.com, of Cook's journey. Plus, there will be links to resources about Cook, so check that out if you want. That's it. Let's get going. For today, we are going to focus on Cook's life up until his first voyage. James Cook was born on November 7, 1728, in the village of Martin in Yorkshire, on the eastern coast of central England, not far from Hull. He was the second of eight children. His parents were James Cook, a Scotsman, and Grace Pace. The elder Cook had come to England as a young man, looking for work. He found steady employment as a farm laborer, and was respected as a reliable and hard worker, with good common sense something his son would inherit. When James was eight, the family moved to Great Ayton, about 50 miles to the north, or 80 kilometers. There, the elder cook became the manager of a local farm. James would often work on the farm doing chores with his father. The farm's owner, however, saw something he liked in young James, and he would pay for him to attend school, which he did for five years. At 16, the Cook family arranged an apprenticeship for James with William Sanderson as a grocer at the seaside community of Stathes, about 20 miles away, or 32 kilometers. James Cook thus left home to take up a new life, one with more potential than that of a common laborer. The young Cook was a tall teen with an angular, craggy face and prominent nose. 
He was a lot like his father, hardworking, reliable, and trustworthy. But he was also ambitious and smart, not to mention very confident in himself. At his new job, Cook literally slept in the store where he worked, under the counter, all that he owned tucked away in the back of the shop. It was here that Cook would be exposed to the sea. He got to know the local fishermen and even went on short trips with them. The idea of life at sea appealed to Cook, much more so than spending his day selling stuff in a store. And so after 18 months, Cook would be released from his apprenticeship. He was then introduced to John and Henry Walker, local ship owners and traders. The men dealt primarily in coal, mostly transporting it down the coast to London, where the city used a million tons a year. It took a thousand ships to satisfy the city's demand, and there was a good profit to be had for entrepreneurs like the Walkers, who had a small fleet of transport ships. The Walkers' home would also be where Cook would stay in these early years, sleeping in the attic while studying math and astronomy at a small table. The Walkers' house, by the way, is now the Captain Cook Memorial Museum. Anyhow, Cook would be taken on by the Walkers as an apprentice in the Merchant Navy. It was a three-year program. As an apprentice, Cook was assigned to one of the transport ships, hauling three and four hundred tons of cargo down the east coast of England. These were strong, stout vessels, called cats, with crews of around a dozen men. Cook's first voyage was in February of 1747. He was gone for almost two months, traveling nearly 300 miles, or 480 kilometers, to London and then back. Now, Cook's life as an apprentice wasn't just working as a seaman on a ship. There was a school for apprentices in town where he learned navigation and math. He would dabble in geometry, trigonometry, and astronomy. Both in the classroom and on the ships, Cook quickly stood out. Physically, he was tall and strong. He was reliable and had good sense, something very important on a ship. Cook would finish his apprenticeship and then start working his way up the ranks in the Merchant Navy, becoming an officer. He went on to serve on ships that sailed not just in England, but to the Baltic Sea, Ireland, and France. And then, in 1755, Cook was offered a command of his own ship by the Walker brothers. And he turned it down. Instead, the 26-year-old Cook would enlist in the Royal Navy. Wow, that's a surprise. Especially when you consider Cook was an officer in the Merchant Navy, and he had an offer to command his own ship. That was steady pay and a solid future. In the Royal Navy, he'd be a basic seaman. That seems like quite a step down in life. However, the move was something that Cook had been considering for a long time. Let's not forget, James Cook was an ambitious and confident young man. He believed that he would rise through the ranks of the King's Navy, just like he had done in the Merchant Navy. And then there was the money. Warships often got prize money for capturing enemy ships and cargo. Officers could make some nice coin by this. And that brings me to another note. Europe was on the brink of war, and Cook knew it. A war meant a good chance to rise up in the ranks of the Navy, plus make some money in the process. In case you are interested... Naval prize money, which was the money gained by capturing enemy ships and cargo, was divided up into eight shares. Two or three went to the captain, depending on the situation. One went to the commander-in-chief, meaning the captain's boss, such as an admiral, if he existed. One would go to the commissioned officers, and one to the warrant officers. And the final two parts would go to the common seamen. As a note, the commissioned officers were usually men of wealth and or position, a warrant officer, or non-commissioned officer, was usually someone of a lower social standing. Anyhow, one example of a war prize is from 1762, when two British warships captured a Spanish ship, the Hermione, loaded with booty. The ship and its contents were auctioned off for more than half a million pounds. The two captains took home 65,000 pounds each. Each seaman got nearly 500 pounds. 
Considering a common sailor was lucky to take home one or two pounds a month, this was a fortune. Of course, ships rarely netted huge sums such as this, but even a fraction of that total was a windfall for a manor, especially a warrant officer, which Cook expected himself to be within a few years. Another reason for enlisting in the Navy was for the excitement. Cook had grown up listening to stories about the great British captains of the age, such as Drake, Hawkins, and Dampier. Hauling coal and other cargo up and down the English coast just wasn't that exciting. Of course, Cook ignored the fact that life in the Royal Navy was hard and dangerous. The conditions were often terrible, especially for a common seaman, and there was no way he would ever command a ship, not when the commissioned officers were all men from rich or noble families who had purchased their position. The most Cook could even hope for was to rise to the rank of warrant officer. Anyhow, Cook signed on as an able seaman with the Royal Navy on June 17, 1755. He was 26 years old. It was a humble beginning for the man who would become one of the greatest naval explorers in history. From the start, Cook would, as he expected, stand out amongst the seamen, and he was quickly appointed master's mate, meaning he was a trusted seaman who helped out the other officers. Just three months after joining the Eagle, Cook's ship would receive a new commander, Hugh Palisar. Palisar was from Yorkshire, the same as Cook, and he would be instrumental in helping Cook throughout his career. He recognized Cook's talents and skills and made sure he learned more about navigation and charting. Now, the war everyone expected to happen didn't officially get declared until 1756, but England and France were getting into the occasional melee even before then. In October of 1755, Cook would see his first action, the Eagle helping capture one French ship and sinking another. And then in 1756, the Seven Years' War would break out, England and Prussia going to war with France, Austria, Russia, and some German principalities. Two notes here. First, in the United States, the Seven Years' War is known as the French and Indian War. And it was not a war between the French and the Indians, but an alliance of the French and native peoples against England and their American colonies. Second note, for our purposes, this war is about England and France, and our focus will be on Canada. Over the next couple of years, Cook would rise in the ranks, becoming a mate and then a bosun. He would pass his master's exam in June of 1757, which allowed him to navigate and handle a ship. The bosun is the officer in charge of sails, rigging anchors, cables, and any work on the deck of a sailing ship. It had taken Cook just two years to rise from the rank of common seaman to that of a warrant officer. In October of 1757, Cook, aided by the support of his captain, Hugh Palisar, was named master of the HMS Pembroke, a just-launched 60-gun warship. By February of 1758, the ship was heading west to the Americas, stopping first in the Caribbean and then heading up to Halifax in Nova Scotia. The voyage had been Cook's first crossing of the Atlantic, and he was able to witness the devastating effects scurvy had on a ship's crew. Cook noted that after about six weeks of salt rations, the effects of scurvy began to emerge. This included weakness, exhaustion, sore limbs, and bleeding gums. All of this was due to the lack of vitamin C. At the time, no one knew the specific cause of scurvy, but it was generally acknowledged that certain foods were helpful at fighting it off. Anyhow, by the time the Pembroke reached Halifax, 26 of her crew were dead, mostly the result of scurvy. Many more had to be transferred to the port's hospital. The Pembroke was part of a large force gathering for a move into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and up the river to break French power in Canada. The French had two key forts guarding the approach, including one at Louisbourg, at the mouth of the Gulf, and the other being Quebec, over 600 miles upriver, or 1,000 kilometers. For the task, the British had assembled 14,000 soldiers, 
12,000 seamen and support personnel, plus 157 ships, including 40 warships. They departed Halifax for Lewisburg, but the Pembroke would not be with them. Too many of the ship's crew were ill, and they would have to wait before joining the main fleet. The fortress of Lewisburg was on the island of Cape Breton and controlled access to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. The French had 7,000 men, and the fortress boasted more than 400 cannon and 17 mortars. However, the French only had five warships to protect their harbor, and their troops were plagued by sickness. Cook and the Pembroke would join the siege at Lewisburg, which went from June 8th until July 26th, 1758. The British would gradually establish a beachhead near Lewisburg and drive the French into the fortress after a fierce fight. By the end of June, siege artillery was in place and the bombardment of the fortress began. Over the next few weeks, three of the French warships guarding the harbor were destroyed, and then on July 25th, the British, in a night attack, successfully destroyed another of the French ships and captured the final one. That allowed the British to enter the harbor. The French surrendered the next day. Quebec was next on the British agenda, but the capture of Louisbourg had taken longer than expected, and it was decided a campaign against the city would have to wait until next spring. As a result, Cook would spend the winter doing two things. First, the Pembroke sailed around the Gulf of St. Lawrence, attacking and raiding the small French settlements, mostly fishing communities, that dotted the shores. And second, and more importantly for Cook, he learned how to conduct a survey. Now, when I talk about surveying a place, it's sort of a catch-all for creating a map or chart of an area, but it's really a lot more complex than that. Wikipedia says surveying is, quote, the technique, profession, art, and science of determining the terrestrial two-dimensional or three-dimensional positions of points and the distances and angles between them, end quote. Surveying requires specific tools and schooling and math skills. Anyhow, Cook would see one of the officers, Samuel Holland, doing some survey work and become fascinated. Holland liked Cook and his enthusiasm, and he would show Cook how a survey was done and teach him how to use the instruments of the profession. Cook loved the rigors of surveying and the ability to recreate things in minute detail. And as a sailor, he understood how important this was to mariners. And thus, Cook would work honing his skills as a surveyor. His first survey was titled, Survey of Gaspé Bay and Harbor by James Cook, Master of His Majesty's Ship, the Pembroke. The report was sent to the British Admiralty in London and published the next year. The Admiralty, by the way, is the department in the British government responsible for the Royal Navy. When weather permitted, Cook would spend the winter of 1758-59 helping create reliable charts and maps of the St. Lawrence River region. He and his fellow surveyors mostly took existing French documents and either confirmed or tweaked them so they were as accurate as possible. Cook's work as a surveyor is one of those happy accidents of life. He had the skills needed to be a surveyor, including a detail-oriented mind and a knowledge of geometry, trigonometry, and astronomy. That he got into the field was chance, but a lucky one for Cook and the British Navy. So, in the spring of 1759, the British would be on the move again, heading up the St. Lawrence River with 35 warships and 10,000 troops. The destination was Quebec, the last great French outpost in Canada and James Cook would have a part in that campaign. As the fleet approached Quebec, Cook was dispatched to survey a large section of the river, including a dangerous channel known as the Traverse. Cook's ship led the way, sounding the channel and guiding the rest of the ship safely up the river. The siege of Quebec would begin in late July 1759 and conclude on September 18th. There were some scary moments for Cook in the siege. During the initial landing near Quebec, 
The French sent some fireboats against the British ships. These fireboats were essentially large unmanned boats packed with flammable materials. They would be launched at a fleet, and the hope being that they would collide and set fire to an enemy ship. In this attack, Cook did well, launching boats with grappling hooks and towing away some of these fireboats. Weeks of fighting and bombardment would follow, but the French, under the Marquis de Montcalm, refused to be drawn from behind their walls and into a pitched fight. However, that would change in September when the British, led by General James Wolfe, landed 5,000 men upriver of the city at night and climbed up some steep hills to the Plains of Abraham. The Plains of Abraham were mostly undefended and offered a direct approach to Quebec. The French needed to dislodge the British quickly before they became entrenched and threatened the entire city. Well, in the battle that followed, the British would defeat the French, both Wolfe and Montcalm dying in the fighting. Quebec would surrender a few days later, the French troops fleeing or being taken prisoner. And while there was more fighting in Canada, the fall of Quebec was the beginning of the end for the French. Within a year, an attempt to retake Quebec would be repulsed, and the British would capture Montreal. Also, the French fleet would be destroyed, meaning no more supplies or reinforcements could be brought to the region. And with that, New France was now in the possession of Great Britain. The Seven Years' War would officially end in 1763, and the territorial gains in North America and India would put Great Britain on a path as the most powerful empire in the world. Now, after the siege of Quebec, Cook was not done in Canada. He was transferred to a larger ship, the Northumberland, where he served as master and continued to learn more about surveying. In the winter of 1759-60, he conducted a detailed survey of Halifax Harbor. For the next couple of years, Cook would work surveying other areas with other men. At the same time, he got to see and experience discipline problems that emerged when men were bored and lacked focus, and he saw the destructiveness of drinking. He also learned more and more about the dreaded disease of scurvy, which often struck the men at isolated outposts or on ships during a long Canadian winter. Cook would not return to England until late 1762, but much had changed since he had enlisted as a common seaman seven years earlier. He had just turned 34 years old and had risen to the rank of warrant officer in the Royal Navy, acquiring some coveted surveying skills along the way. Also, he had accumulated nearly 300 pounds of pay. Not bad for the simple son of a farm laborer. If Cook had lived out his life in a nondescript fashion going forward, most people would qualify him as a success. But nobody, not even the always confident Cook, could have predicted what lay in his future. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. 
They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. James Cook came home to England with some cash in his pocket and plenty of confidence in himself. His career was on the upswing, and thus he decided it was time to turn to personal matters, which meant finding himself a wife. An interstage left is 20-year-old Elizabeth Batts, the daughter of a well-to-do innkeeper. Elizabeth's father was a friend and mentor to Cook. She was said to be smart and sensible, a lot like her future husband. By all accounts, Cook and Elizabeth quickly were smitten with each other and were married within a few weeks of meeting in December of 1762. The money Cook had saved from his tour in Canada allowed the couple to buy a three-story brick house near London. So, as Cook was getting married, the wheels of an empire would be turning, slowly, and our mariner would soon be caught up in them. Remember, Great Britain had just added the whole of known Canada to its empire portfolio, and they didn't know that much about it. To help understand these new lands, the Admiralty was looking for some way to survey the coast of Newfoundland. At the time, many of the charts and maps of Newfoundland, and the straits leading into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, were unreliable. And so, when people started asking who would be good for the gig, well, Admiral Lord Colville would write his bosses at the Admiralty and toss out Cook's name, saying, quote, I beg to inform their lordships that from my experience of Mr. Cook's genius and capacity, I think him well fitted for the work he has undertaken and for greater undertakings of the same kind, end quote. Genius and capacity, that's quite the recommendation. And I should point out that while genius was not usually the word used to describe Cook by his commanders, he was routinely praised for the work he did, whatever the task. Cook comes across as the guy you could count on to get the job done. Sensible, smart, and pragmatic, and without a lot of unnecessary drama. Those are the kinds of people you want on your side. Anyhow, Cook was given the job, and he was back to Canada in the spring of 1763, leaving his now pregnant wife behind. For the next five years, Cook would come to Canada each spring and leave in the fall. Cook and his team did their jobs out of a schooner, the HMS Grenville. The shallow-drafted schooner allowed him to go ashore as needed or make observations from on board. And thus, Cook meticulously mapped the coast of the notoriously jagged and dangerous island, which is the 16th largest in the world. He surveyed the northwest stretch of Newfoundland in 1763 and 64, the south coast in 1765 and 66, and the west coast in 1767. He often used local pilots to help him identify hidden dangers, such as rocks. When he was home in England, Cook worked out of the Admiralty office in London, carefully putting together all the maps and charts of Newfoundland and the surrounding area. James and Elizabeth would have four children during this time, one girl and three boys. One of the boys would die in infancy. As for Cook, this long-term survey of Newfoundland was a chance to not only show off his skills as a surveyor, but as a leader. He proved to be stern, but fair. He understood that men needed to be engaged and productive, and if they were idle, they often drank too much. A side note here. The drinking of alcohol was a time-honored tradition in the Royal Navy. This might be rum or grog or whatever, but it was booze. And in the British Navy, the alcohol ration was not an option. It was pretty much a requirement. And getting alcohol, legally or illegally, was big business on any ship. 
As a result, drinking was a major issue in the Navy, and we will talk more about this in our upcoming episodes. Side note done. So regarding Cook's time survey in Newfoundland, for most people it was boring and monotonous, but not for Cook. But it was not without dangers. The Grenville would be threatened numerous times during her ventures due to storms and tides and other threats, and Cook would escape serious injury, and even death, in August of 1764, when a powder horn exploded in his hand. Luckily, there was a nearby French fishing boat with a surgeon on board. The doctor would operate on the hand and save it from being amputated. Cook's hand was so damaged he was laid up for a month, and he had a scar from his thumb to forefinger and high up the wrist. During all of this, Cook, ever the curious man, was always learning. It's one of those things I admire about the man. As a note, on August 5th, 1766, while surveying some islands on the south coast of Newfoundland, Cook would get the chance to observe an eclipse of the sun. He measured the start and finish of the eclipse and sent the results back to England, where they were forwarded to the Royal Society, who were thrilled at the data. This might seem sort of innocuous, but it will be important in a few minutes, so hang on. And so, in five years surveying Newfoundland and the surrounding area, Cook and his team would map more than 6,000 miles, or nearly 10,000 kilometers, of coastline. The work that Cook did was groundbreaking. He produced the first large-scale and accurate maps of the island's coasts. These were also the first scientific, large-scale, hydrographic surveys to use precise triangulation to establish land outlines. Hydrography, by the way, deals with the measurement and description of the physical features of oceans, seas, coastal areas, lakes, and rivers. All things very important to a mariner. The maps Cook produced were so accurate they were used into the 20th century. I am not exaggerating when I say they are amazing. You can put Cook's maps side by side with modern maps, and you can't help but be amazed at the detail and care put in by Cook and his team more than 250 years ago. I put some links on the website if you want to see some of these. Anyhow, Cook surveying had caught the eyes of people at the Admiralty and at the Royal Society. Also, Cook had the support of his old captain, Hugh Palisar, who had gone on to become the governor of Newfoundland and would aid in getting Cook's works published in 1768. So, Cook had done well for himself. He wasn't from money or of noble birth, and he had little formal education. But he had proved to be a smart, meticulous, and confident man, self-taught in many areas of science. He was going places in this world. The only question was where. And that gets us up to the spring of 1768. Scientists from all over the world were excited about a phenomenon called the transit of Venus, which was scheduled to take place in June of 1769. The transit of Venus is the rarest of predictable astronomical phenomena. Now, there had been a transit of Venus in 1761, but the next one would not happen until 1874. That's 100 plus years. The transit of Venus takes place when the planet Venus passes directly between the Sun and the Earth. When this happens, Venus becomes visible against the Sun, looking like a small disk. By recording the start and end of the event from locations around the world, you can use trigonometry to calculate the distance between Venus and the Sun. This allows people, who are way smarter than me, to start accurately measuring the size of the solar system. And so, this was a golden opportunity for science. The measuring of the 1761 transit had been unsuccessful due to poor weather conditions around the globe the day of the event. The 1769 transit would give scientists another opportunity. Now, one of the key things about the transit of Venus is that to use the data, you need to view the transit from all over the world. And that was when someone in a big room at the Royal Society said, hey, why not send someone to the Pacific to make an observation? And everyone else said, great idea. 
Okay, I don't know exactly who and what and where all this was said, but you get the idea. The Royal Society actually wanted to make observations from three locations, Hudson's Bay, Norway, and the Pacific. The latter had never been done before. Other nations would be doing observations of the transit as well. The Royal Society, by the way, was Great Britain's leading organization dedicated to the sciences. The Society would make a proposal to the government. For the Pacific Venture, they asked for £4,000 and a ship. And the British government was interested. The Transit of Venus mission would be a perfect excuse to send a ship to the South Pacific, do some exploring, and beat out other nations who were poking around the region. One threat already on the table was French explorer Antoine de Bourguignville, who had recently departed on an expedition to circumnavigate the world. It was said the South Pacific was a potential area of exploration. With those threats looming, the Admiralty was on board. And so, with funding and a ship secured, the next question was, who would lead the enterprise? The Royal Society wanted Alexander Dalrymple, a Scottish explorer and geographer. Dalrymple had explored the region in question and was a proponent of the Terra Australis theory, which was that there was a large undiscovered continent toward the southern polar regions, and he wanted to go back and find it. And so when the Royal Society approached him about the expedition, he was enthusiastic about the idea. But Dalrymple was a civilian, and when he demanded to be the boss of the expedition, which was a Royal Navy affair, the Admiralty said, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. In fact, the written comment from the Admiralty was that the idea was, quote, entirely repugnant to the regulations of the Navy, end quote. First Lord of the Admiralty Sir Edward Hawke said he would, quote, rather his right hand be cut off than see a civilian command a naval vessel, end quote. We will just call that a no. And so, with Dalrymple out of the mix, other names got tossed out onto the table, one being James Cook. No one had anything bad to say about Cook, and there were lots of good things. Hugh Palisar highly recommended him for the job. The Admiralty thought highly of Cook, and so did the Society. The latter had been impressed not just by his survey work, but by the scientific work done when he had measured the eclipse in Newfoundland a couple years earlier. He was, however, only a warrant officer and not a gentleman. But you know what? Rank and class snobbery aside, on May 5, 1768, the Royal Society convened and came to the conclusion that James Cook was the man for the job. Author Martin Dugard, in his biography of Cook, Farther Than Any Man, says no warrant officer in the history of the Royal Navy had, up to that time, been selected to command a British warship, or awarded a commission. Commissions were usually obtained by paying lots of money or having really good connections. I honestly don't know if this is true, but that Cook got the job is pretty amazing. Now, regarding all this, I do want to take a moment to introduce a man who will be very important to our story going forward, and that is Joseph Banks. Banks was, at this time, a 25-year-old nobleman who had been on the path of becoming a rich, aimless playboy until he became obsessed with botany and the natural sciences as a teen. It was said that at Oxford, he had more knowledge of botany than many of his professors. Banks was immensely rich, and he dropped out of the university to chase his passion. He would make a name for himself by participating in a natural science expedition to Canada in 1766, later publishing the first Linnaean descriptions of the plants and animals of Newfoundland and Labrador. This included 34 species of bird, including the great auk, which became extinct in 1844. Well, fast forward to 1768, and Banks was excited about the proposed expedition to the Pacific. Already a member of the Royal Society, Banks got himself appointed head of the scientific contingent for the expedition. He would even pay for eight other civilian positions. 
Banks, however, was an ambitious man, and I have read some sources that say he longed to command the entire expedition. That had led to speculation that Banks had maneuvered to have someone of lesser rank to be made commander of the expedition. A Royal Navy officer with noble connections was not someone Banks could boss around, but a warrant officer from the lower classes, that was a different matter. If someone like, let's say, James Cook was the commander, well, Banks could use his social status to lord over the lesser man, making himself the de facto leader of the entire affair. Whether any of this is true, I honestly don't know, but the dynamic between Cook and Banks will be fascinating. No matter, Cook was the man for the expedition. After some debate, he was given a promotion to first lieutenant in His Majesty's Navy. It is said that the Admiralty did not dare give a mere master the command, for fear of setting a precedent and offending the Navy's officer corps. And so, with his command and new rank in hand, Cook was ordered to head to Deptford, a London suburb along the Thames River, and take command of the HMS Endeavour. The intention was to sail to the Pacific to record the transit of Venus in 1769. The ship, which had a crew of about 70, was classified as a bark, almost 100 feet long and 29 feet wide. She had three masts and could make 78 knots when under full sail. The ship boasted 10 four-pound cannons, as well as a dozen small swivel guns. The ship had been built in 1764 and recently purchased by the Admiralty. She was sturdy and had a broad, flat bow, square stern, and box-like body. The hull was built from white oak, the keel and stern post from elm. The masts were from pine and fir. The flat-bottom design meant she could easily move through shallow waters and even be beached for loading and unloading cargo or basic repairs. Locally, the ship had been known as the Whitney Cat, and if you recall earlier in this episode, Cook had spent years working on cargo ships called Cats, and the Endeavor was similar to that design, so Cook was commanding a ship whose qualities he knew intimately. As a note, the Scottish explorer Alexander Dalrymple never forgave Cook for getting the job commanding the Pacific Expedition. For years, he would disparage Cook and his work whenever he got the chance. Anyhow, Cook reported to Deptford to oversee the refit of the ship. In addition to the crew, there would be some marines plus a contingent of civilians, led by Joseph Banks, mostly dealing with the scientific element of the expedition. But we will speak about all of that next time. I do want to talk about Cook for a moment before we wrap up. He was 39 years old and was a veteran who demonstrated the ability to lead men in difficult situations. And he had shown dedication and perseverance. It gave him gravitas and respect. I think he was, at this time, a very steady, respected, and even presence with an understanding of the big picture and thus he was a very good choice to lead the Pacific Expedition. I think today's episode brought out some important things about Cook going forward. First, he will be obsessive about the diet of his men under his command. He had seen how scurvy could decimate a ship's contingent, and he was determined to avoid the fate on his expedition. Second, Cook had seen how problematic drinking was in the Royal Navy, and he will work hard to curb its negative influences. Third, Cook had developed into a fair but stern commanding officer, it is something that will, mostly, endear him to his men going forward. And fourth, I don't think we can underestimate how ambitious James Cook was. He dreamed of sailing to the corners of the world. In fact, after returning from Newfoundland, Cook would say he intended to go, quote, farther than any man has been before me, but as far as I think it is possible for a man to go, end quote. It also means that Cook will be no pushover when anyone tries to encroach on his authority as captain of the Endeavor. And with that, I want to finish by discussing Cook's full mission. He had three objectives. First, he was to go to the recently discovered island of Tahiti to make the transit observations. 
This was the public explanation of the Enterprise. But Cook had two other objectives, both labeled as secret. After completing the transit observations, Cook was to proceed south and investigate the existence of Terra Australis, the southern continent people said existed, but no one had actually seen. As we have talked about in other episodes, Terra Australis, which means southern land, was a hypothetical continent that had been speculated about for nearly 2,000 years. Some people said a southern continent was necessary to balance all the land masses in the north. The aforementioned Alexander Dalrymple was a big proponent of the existence of Terra Australis, saying as many as 50 million people could be living there. Such a place would offer incredible opportunities. After that, Cook was to head to New Zealand and explore those islands. New Zealand had been visited by Abel Tasman over 100 years earlier, but surprisingly, no one had returned. In fact, most of the places explored by Tasman, including Tasmania, New Zealand, and the South Pacific Islands he came across, had not been visited by Europeans since these initial encounters in the 1640s. After New Zealand, Cook was to find his way home in the way he felt best for the ship. As a note, there was no mention of exploring New Holland, aka Australia, whose eastern coast was thus far unreached by Europeans. And there was no mention of circumnavigating the globe, but the idea was almost certainly discussed by Cook's bosses. I also want to mention that the South Pacific region was, at this time, really coming into the spotlight of several world powers, so any sort of expedition to this area would go a long way toward England staking a claim to any valuable lands that Cook might discover. It was all part of the great game of politics played by the powers of the day. And so that is where we will leave things for today. Cook was at Deptford, personally overseeing the refitting of the Endeavour. Time was short, as the transit of Venus was only a year away. In addition to readying the ship, Cook needed to get his officers and crew together and obtain provisions and supplies. Also, the civilian side of the expedition had to come together as well. Next time, we will get the Endeavour ready to sail and take off on what will be one of the greatest voyages of exploration in history. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I hope you are doing well. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other fun and interesting and exciting shows, such as The Labors of Hercule and Kick-Ass News. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.